Let's be honest, few humans enjoy meetings and many feel trapped in meetings. As leaders, we don't want to burden those we lead, but meetings can seem to do that more often than not. We wanted to address the pain of meetings through the Meetings with Saints Library. Here we have 15 plus presentations dedicated to improving the meetings we run. We have experts in the field addressing topics like getting people involved in meetings, staying on task, dealing with conflict in meetings, and a ton more. We'd love you to explore the full Meetings with Saints library over 14 days at no cost to you. You can do this by visiting leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. We'll also give you access to all of our virtual libraries that educate about other leadership topics. It's really good stuff. So visit leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. All right, let's go around the room, do some introductions. I'll start. So my name is Kurt Frankham. I am the executive director of Leading Saints, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are dedicated, you know, have a mission here to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, me personally, I live in Stansbury Park, Utah, which is in Tooele County. I grew up in West Valley City and I've been running Leading Saints really since 2010 when it started out as a hobby blog. 2014 is when the podcast started and now we are over 10 million downloads. And uh, man, we're glad that you are now one of those downloads. Let's jump in. So this episode you're about to hear, I actually had it slated to be one of our Wednesday How I Lead segments where I talk with everyday leaders across the world and just simply ask them, how is it that you lead in such and such calling? Then the more I I emailed with Keith Pankow, who is the guest for this episode, the ideas went back and forth and we settled on this idea of uh, taking some of his knowledge that he learned being in the Coast Guard for several years, experiencing leadership there and how he is implementing it as a bishop on this uh, spiritual search and rescue missions that, that he has, you know, as a, as a bishop of bringing people to Christ. And so many great principles came up and, and keep your ears open for this concept of finding those who are biased for action and fascinating concept and discussion as, that feeds into why the same 10 people are always called and how we can get out of that mold and invite others into uh, the the mission and vision of a ward organ an organization And then there's this concept of the bystander, right? There's always those individuals and no matter what organization you're in or that you're leading, there's always the bystander who needs an invitation into the battle, into the vision, into the effort of where the direction that the organization is going. And the more you can turn bystanders into those who are biased for action, the better it is. So here is my interview with Keith Pankow. Keith Pankow, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Thanks so much, Kurt. I'm so excited to be here. Huge fan of the show. Michael Albright introduced me, and ever since he introduced me, I've been sending it out to my entire ward council, my elders quorum president. Me and him are both big podcast junkies, so oh, we cool. kick back and forth. And every time you're like, hey, when you, if you think of that person that listens to the podcast, I'm like, hey, I'm that person. Why isn't anybody sending me Kurt's podcast? Like, I'm that person. I don't ever get upset to me. So yeah. if you listen to that and you know me, I expect to get sent more of these leading saint podcasts, even though I, I love it. To them. Well, and we have, I mean, so many directions we can go as far as introducing you or things we can talk about. But so you just retired from the Coast Guard, right? Yep. Back in September. So pretty recent. Nice. And how many years did you have in the Coast Guard? I did nine in the Navy and then 13 in the Coast Guard, but it all kind of aggregates together to about 22 years in the military. Awesome. Very cool. And you're currently serving as a bishop. How long have you been a bishop? Almost a year. So still pretty new. I'm still what they think a lot of people look at me as a rookie bishop, but okay. I'm, I'm good with that. I, <laughs> I plan to stay that way and keep learning the whole time. Sure. And then you're also a podcaster. Uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So I'm working on a doctor of education and I had to build an informal learning environment and people coaxed me into this podcast. I was did it a little hesitantly, but I've loved it and it kind of took off and I've been enjoying it. But it's called That All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. And I just I did some of my master's work in servant leadership and I've always gravitated towards it because I feel that the savior is the ultimate servant leader. And I want to be more of a servant leader because of that. And I feel like a lot of people won't 
outright talk about the Savior, but a lot of people will talk about servant leadership because they resonate towards those, those principles resonate with them, if you will. And the podcast is, has been this way for me to talk about the attributes and principles of the Savior in some ways to bring people that would never necessarily outright talk about the Savior, but they'll incorporate His attributes and teachings into their lifestyles. And some times we outright talk about the Savior on the podcast because we bring other members yeah. of the church and other non-denominational members and other religions on as well, because the, the title that all might be edified, I really want to bring this environment where we build a multicultural community together to talk about ways to lift each other up. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a Latter-day Saint podcast, though you may talk about some related topics. Yeah, there's definitely a slant towards more Latter-day Saints than less because that's just a lot of people I know. But there's a good mix, I think, on there. But yeah, not specifically a Latter-day Saint podcast. Awesome. Very good. So we went back and forth with some emails as far as just determining what we would talk about. Do we want to focus on your time as a bishop or many of the other leadership callings that you've had? But then you came back with a a topic that really fascinated me about councils and, and drawing upon some analogies and experience they had in the Coast Guard. Because I mean, that's why I love talking with military guys, because I mean, that is true leadership. When you when you've got somebody who's missing, and you've got to, you know, you know, gather the, the troops and, and go out and execute this mission. I mean, you can't, leadership becomes very real in those instances, right? And so I love sort of overlaying these military or uh, general leadership principles onto church leadership to see what, what we can learn from. So Maybe launch us into this topic. Where's a good place to start to understand where we're going? Yeah, I think I got to talk a little bit about the background in search and rescue to kind of educate people. So bear with me. It might be a little long, but I promise there's a good kind of with it. Awesome. And, you know, if you've seen The Guardian, I told Kurt. uh, Kevin Costner movie, right? Yeah, Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner, Ashton Kutcher. Us in the Coast Guard, we cringe a little bit because everyone thinks everyone's a rescue swimmer when they've seen The Guardian. Not all of us are rescue swimmers. I've lost my physique to be a rescue swimmer. I still love to swim, but, you know, or, you know, their finest hours. And that's a, my favorite Coast Guard movie. But, you know, if you, those are good movies to talk about search and rescue if you have no background in it. But I digress a little bit. But search and rescue, the title is actually, we use this computer program to assist us in search and rescue in what we would call a command center. And it's called SARops or Search and Rescue Optimal Planning System. And I love that word optimal because I'm going to transcend a little bit of between spiritual and search and rescue to kind of blend this a little bit as I talk. So optimal is important for us to create an optimal search pattern in search and rescue. The systems are very, very important because we'll plug in as much data as we can get to get the optimal search pattern so that we can you know, maximize the resources on scene time because our helicopters and aircraft, they have, you know, a limited amount of time they can be on scene. And we want to get there and get the, the best chance of success or what we call a high probability of success. We get a POS score, a probability of success score. But optimal, it's interesting in Isaiah 55, we talk about, you know, optimal for man is not optimal for the Lord. And I want to plug this in because we're going to go back and forth with this when we talk about the spiritual search and rescue and councils and human search and rescue. But the, the Lord tells us for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that's important for councils. So I'm going to teach this analogy, but when we go to councils, that's important for us to remember. Now, going back to search and rescue. So whenever we get a search and rescue case, we try to get as much information about the person. So, you know, we look at, we start with these search and rescue phases. So we have initial action or awareness. We have to first know that any, there's actually a case to do search and rescue on, or there's a concern of search and rescue. So a lot of the search and rescue cases come because a family member is like, hey, my relative is overdue. They went out on a trip. They told me they were supposed to be back in such and such time, and they're not back yet. And I'm really worried about them. And so they call the Coast Guard or the police office, and they say, hey, I'm worried worried about my husband or my wife or so-and-so or my son. They took the boat, and they're just not back. And so we start to see what else has been done. We call the marinas. Has anybody checked in? Is this boat there? Is that car still there? So we ask all these questions to get as much data as we can. Did anyone see this person? Hey, you know, what were they wearing? So that we can plug as much information about them as we can. And so that gets us to initial actions. What was already done? So we get as much information. But then we get into these the next three phases, which I think are real pertinent to a, a ward council or other councils as well. So the planning phase, which is really where the council comes in. And that's where we get into for search and rescue. You know, I go into this tool and I plug in, hey, did they have a PFD? Were they on a boat? What type of boat was it? And so if I know very little about them, 
And I'm going to stop on the other phases because I want to talk about the rescuee right now for just a little bit. If I know very little about them, I have to go with the least amount of information because I want to narrow the search pattern as much as possible because I don't want to make it too wide to find where that person's at. And if I give them too much a boat, it's going to make that too wider so the aircraft or the boats can see them a little bit better. So, but if I, if I only, if I don't, if they didn't have a PFD, if they're just floating in the water, Kurt, how much do you think my probability of success to find an individual is with no personal protective a flotation device or anything else? If they don't have a, a life jacket, I mean, that's, I would imagine you get tired treading water after a short time, at least I would. So very little likelihood of, of finding them. Yeah, probably in the low, maybe less than 1%. Now, mm-hmm. we even with a life jacket or a personal flotation device, what would you think the percentage of probability of success of finding someone with just that amount of interest? If we, just, if we don't know anything else, but we knew they had a life jacket. Uh, I'm going to say it's pretty low, 5%. Yeah, it's maybe 1% or 2%. It's extremely oh, wow. low because now think about it. If they just have a life jacket, you're in the even on a boat, you're looking out over the water. Now think back to the time. If anybody's ever been on the water or looking over a body of water, you've probably seen all the water looks the same. The sun's glinting off the water. It's really hard to pick out any object whatsoever. Now, our rescuees, we can think back to a time when anybody's spiritual case, and this is where I really wanted to start the conversation because as a ward council, or even in our family councils or our state councils or whatever council we might be on talking to people, you know, we enter our planning phase, usually talking about people like this, where they're, we don't know much about them at all. And we're trying to create a plan and we're just gazing off into the horizon without any information at all. Well, our success rate's probably in that low, less than 5% range as well. And that's why we're not very successful because we're not gathering information. We're just, we're just going and making assignments without gathering information. And we're, that's kind of where we're at. Well, the next phase of the search and rescue is operations, and then we get into conclusions. And so that operations would be making those assignments. Conclusions would be, you know, reporting back those ministering interviews, you know, things like that, other things as well, right? Well, if we know that they had a boat, or if we if we know their last known location, or if we know where they're at spiritually, like if we tie those two things together, if we know their last known location, that percentage jumps up into the 70s, 80s, 90% sometimes, depending. If we can ping that, if they called us by the phone, if we reached out to them, that percentage skyrockets. Like it's amazing the difference in our search and rescue plan. And so yeah. now just want to transition a little bit. Well, let me ask you, let me slip a question here as far as like, I'm just thinking what that would look like in a, in a ward setting. You know, I'm thinking obviously church attendance. So I, if we haven't seen them for, for six months, something's going on or even that, like, you know, we have the report, like the endowed without recommend list, right? Like that's an indicator of, of where they're at. Like, you know, they're endowed, but they haven't renewed their recommended in, you know, in five years. And so there, there's an indicator, right? There's, and I'm sure there's some others though, but that's what you're talking about. Of where are they at spiritually? Cause it's easy to assume, you know, Jerry, he shows up, he's smiling on Sunday. It must be good moving on. Right. But there's maybe some other or indicators to, to consider. Yeah. Great question, Kurt. I'm so glad you asked it. There's a lot, right? So, you know, endowed without recommend, did they serve a mission? You know, anything that we can tie back to spiritually or, you know, how's their family doing? You know, things like these, we usually make assumptions on. Is their family going to a church? Is it just one member, right? The different things that we can check in. We can, you know, my state president, Dome, he likes to say, check the pulse of an individual, right? So actually have a conversation with mm. them or something like that. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, related to where they're at spiritually necessarily, but you maybe checking in with them, see how they're doing, getting to know them. I think too often we go right to, you know, where are you at? How are you doing? Or are you saying your prayers? Or do you need to repent? Let me give you a perfect example. I have this amazing young woman who, you know, her dad's not active in church. Her mom, she comes when when her, her daughters are, are doing a lot or she's been supporting them a lot more. But it's, you know, it's a tough battle because her husband, although he, he converted to the church from his Catholic faith, he, he left again and you know, she's been doing different things, but they have these three amazing daughters, fantastic girls. One of them super active, drives herself to seminary. One of them is a lot more involved in sports, still a great girl. She just comes a little less frequently. And the youngest one is an amazing girl, but they kind of, her family and her, they, they kind of like treat her like she doesn't have the same spiritual capacity and other people treat her this way too. And, and she's got this phenomenal testimony 
and nobody really sees it. And so I'm meeting with her and I'm talking with her and I'm, I ask her and I'm, I'm not going to say her name because I don't want to out her. Right. And so I'm just, at, I'm talking to her and I'm like, Hey, and I, it comes to me and I asked both her and a, a few other girls. I've asked this question a lot lately and the answer's always been the same. And I'm like, cause I've really been concerned about my young women as a bishop. And I'm like, Hey, let me ask you a question. Who do you think in our young women could benefit from having a better relationship with the savior? And they've all, every single one of them just paused, has thought about it and said, well, I guess me. It's been, it's been fascinating to watch. And I've said, huh, well, why do you think that? And then they've shared some insight. They've all been different. They've shared some insight. Well, this girl, she says to me, well, I say my prayers, but I'm just not that great at saying them enough. And I go, whoa, 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 let's, let's pause right there. I go, let's celebrate the fact that you're saying your prayers. Can we stop for a minute and just celebrate that? Can we celebrate the fact that you want to talk to Heavenly Father? I want to tell you right now as your bishop that your Heavenly Father loves that you want to talk to Him. He's excited that you want to talk to Him. And Kurt, I'll tell you, her whole demeanor changed. It was beautiful. I watched her countenance light the room up. And we had a completely different conversation than I think we would have had otherwise. And every time I interact with her now, it's a totally different interaction than I've ever had with her in the whole time I've been in the ward. And just because, you know, we stopped and I was like, I could have been like, oh yeah, you should be saying your prayers every day. I mean, I could have easily said that as a, I mean, that's a simple thing. I I probably say that to myself a hundred times. Like, oh, you know, I do it all the time. Oh man, I forgot to say a prayer for this. I'm like, oh, I better do that better. And, you know, my negative self-talk gets in there and you know, and I think that's the times when you ask those, those indicators, you know, so we, we look at this list and we come up with this list and that's a good list to start, right? So you, you look at those, you plug that data points in like, okay, so going back to your original question. So endowed without a recommend, served a mission, part member family, you know, half the family's coming to church. Okay. So now I've got a lot more things that are pushing me towards probably a higher probability of success to working with an individual and maybe getting them there, right? As a ward counsel, I'm like, okay, this might be, and, and nothing we do, going back to that optimal with the Heavenly Father and optimal in the world, nothing we should do should be based on a computer program in the church at all. But that, if I'm sitting there and looking at these things, I would feel confident going to my ward council and saying, hey, I'm looking at this person and what do you think about us taking a targeted approach as a ward council on this individual? And that's what I really thought, you know, that's what I think the search and rescue component comes in really nicely, that targeted approach instead of like everybody going off in their different directions and working, you know, with different individuals, because we had this one experience with a sister, well, it was actually a brother, a member of the church, and just an assignment was made by the bishop at the time while I was serving in young men's president. And he said, call somebody, just call somebody from this list that meets this criteria. He Same thing. He just said, I want you to call somebody that you don't know from our ward roster that meets this specific criteria. And he gave him, I don't even remember what the criteria was, but he gave him a specific criteria. And he gave him a criteria. He called someone. He said, he got the phone call. He says, look, I've been really sick. Um, I've been hospital bound. I haven't had the sacrament in a really long time, but because of the sickness, I'd really like someone to bring me the sacrament. Can you arrange that for me? And yeah, if I could take care of that. Sure. So it's the executive secretary. Says, bishop, hey, guess what I had? I had this amazing experience. Wants me to bring the sacrament. So Bishop calls me. Hey, Hey, Keith, can you get the young men to help bring the sacrament to this brother? We arrange the sacrament to go over. Well, it turns out his wife wants the missionaries now to come over because she's not a member of the church. Well, then we get the Relief Society involved. Well, then we get the young women involved to help kind of do some stuff with her. And then we get the young men doing yard work for him. And then the whole ward council is now involved with this one family. His wife gets baptized. He unfortunately passes away not too long after, but we've, you know, we've unified a family now. And it, it was an amazing experience. And that's those little things like that, that are targeted approaches based on these criteria that are inspired. And that's one of my philosophies is to empower others to act by sharing opportunities to labor in the Lord's vineyard through intentional inspired invitations. It's those intentional inspired invitations that are the operations part of that search and rescue. Yeah. So like, give us, give me some more examples of what that looks like. Like, is it a matter of just pinpointing the opportunity, like this family needs help, or I need you to do this. And because sometimes I think like leaders are like, I'm not sure what needs to be done. So let's just meet and we'll talk about some things. And maybe it's still those ideas still come to the surface. 
yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. They look and and even though you're, you'll tell them like, who needs help? And you'll, they'll kind of give me blank stares this day because we try really hard to do this even in our ward council. And sometimes I'll get blank stares back at me. And I have a, a phenomenal ward council. I love them. And sometimes you do have to kind of teach this aspect of what does it mean to really kind of look at it. And so I've seen many different things where people will help the ward council come up with like five focus families that the ward council is going to focus on together or different. There's all different things. And I think that's important to use, you know, the, the keys of that are associated with the bishop or the state president and state councils to do those different things. Whatever you're inspired to focus on through that, that council specifically do that. Right. But, you know, in the absence of that, I think it looks like, you know, when I'm, you know, if I'm elders quorum president, or I'm a young men's well, bishop now, bishop and ironic priesthood president, or I'm the ward mission leader, or in our ward, we even have a, a family in history, family history and temple leader, or, you know, primary president and young women's president and Relief society president, you know, when I get that team together, you know, I want them exactly like my search and rescue team. I want everybody to know everyone on that team is just as important as the next person. Like there's not a single member of that team that I could function without. Like just like my search and rescue team in the Coast Guard, I can't save a life without my entire team. I firmly believe that the Lord uses councils because that's his version of optimal. That's how he teaches us to learn his method. And my view of the world is if we are really going to build us up as a people, that's going to move towards the Zion that's going to meet Enoch City coming down from the clouds, we have to learn to counsel in a way that we're prepared to meet Enoch City. And that takes appreciating and loving each person on that council so they, they're they prepared to share ideas as crazy as they might sound or to bring up names that maybe no one's thought of you know, that maybe someone might not even know from the ward roster. They, they, they just felt a spiritual inclination. They went to the temple and they just had a name come to their mind and they're ready to come to the ward council. And everyone's going to be like, okay, let's learn more about them. But then that's what it takes to go back and look at whatever information we have to talk to the ministering companionships. And if the ministering companionships don't know anything about them, to find out, did they have any friends in the ward before? Did they know anybody? Does anyone know this family or anything about them? And get as much data as you can. And if you can't, you know, look, that's why the minist- the missionaries area book can be a useful tool that I think is very heavily underutilized because those missionaries have gone back and looked at every part member family. I guarantee you that. They've looked at every like less active member. They've Some of the people in the ward roster that you've never heard of, they've tried to find them. And they probably have notes that go back several sets of missionaries that people don't even know about. And so if you go talk to them, they can look through their area book and be like, oh, I have this little data set that we hardly ever talk about in ward council. But you can go talk to them about it and pull from that information. But then it's really making an assignment. It's sitting down and counseling together. Okay, we know this family has such and such kids. They have a 17-year-old, for example. Oh, Bishop, you have a 17-year-old. You have a 17-year-old who's really struggling with your faith, which I do. Maybe you should go talk to her because you really get what's going on. You know how hard this is. Or, hey, President Rice, I can use my other court president's name because he's a big fan of your show and he, <laughs> Give he's me my a shout best out, friend. Man. He's my best friend. So say President Rice, <laughs> you know, President Rice, you know, you have a young son and, you know, your wife just had, you know, some massive struggles. And so maybe you can go talk to this family because you really know what the, the what the, the challenges of life can bring on, you know, and, you know, maybe you can connect with this family, you know, something like that. Or maybe it's not any of those things, right? Like, Think of, I think about this. It's a story that President Nelson tells about when he was sent to Europe to talk to them about an assignment he got. And he thought he was the worst person to go talk about that assignment. But then they asked the question about, well, you serve, everyone should serve a mission. Like they didn't want to let him go serve because they thought missions, I'm butchering this, but they thought missions were a requirement for everyone to serve. So they didn't want to let missionaries come into their country. And they asked this apostle because it was elder president Nelson was just elder Nelson. Then we're like, well, you served in a mission back then. And he's like, well, no, I didn't. So he was the perfect person to send for that assignment. I think sometimes we just need to look for that inspiration and we need to get out of our own way, sit back and listen to the spirit and look around the room and let the spirit speak to us. And a lot of times the person we're being inspired about is not in that room to make the invitation to, but we're so quick to make the invitation to just the people in the room 
that we Mm. don't let everyone get involved in the Lord's work. And we have to stop doing that. We have to make the invitations outside that council to get everyone involved in the Lord's vineyard. Yeah. No, I love that encouragement because it is easy to get sort of in a a silo there, a ward council silo where, you know, you just sort of rely on the people in the room and, and nothing will increase the engagement more in a ward by looking more broadly at, all right, who you know, who is in the ward that can really help us with this, that has a, a skill set, a an interest or some type of concept in their life that they can relate to that individual who needs, needs rescuing more than others, right? Let me ask you this question, because I'm, again, I, I love this contrast between like the Coast Guard, like on a search and rescue mission and the ward council on a spiritual search and rescue mission. Obviously, if I'm a fisherman who's in the middle of the ocean and I've lost my oars or I've my engine's not working, whatever it is, I really, really want to be rescued, you know, like really want to be rescued. A lot of motivation there. And the Coast Guard, you have a team of highly trained individuals who are, you know, it's their job. They're in the Coast Guard. This is what they do. And they are excited to help. In the ward council setting, maybe this family doesn't really think they need to be rescued. You know, no, we're good, actually. Like we're, we we just want to come every every six months or we don't, you know, we're we're happy with where we're at and not necessarily uh, lost. Or the your ward council just seems like, you know what, I, I mean, sure, I'm happy to help, but then the engagement's not there, or maybe the training isn't at the same level as maybe in the Coast Guard. So, I mean, how do you reconcile some of those dynamics? I'm sure you face them in, in your time in church leadership. Yeah, and you face them even in the Coast Guard. So let me tell you a story <laughs> that I think will capture everybody. So we went on a, a search and rescue case not too long ago, and it was a sailboat person, and he really needed to be rescued helicopters overhead flying. They get called out on the search and rescue case. They're hovering. And he's like, go away, go away. Super angry, hostile. Just go away. And they're like, sir, you're probably going to die. And they're like, go away. And he's like, they're like, and they're calling him, what do we do? Like this guy needs to be rescued. And he's like, just go in there. So they're like, what do we do? And they're trying to get answers. And before they get their answer about what to do, he starts shooting at the helicopter with a gun. Oh my so goodness. <laughs> you might think everybody that needs to be rescued wants to be rescued, but it's no different. It's no different. Like it's the same. And even in a Coast Guard setting, we're always moving around. And so it's got a lot more application than you would think. So we move jobs just as much. I've been stationed in Alaska and Georgia and California and Louisiana and all over the world. I've, I've trained people how to do crisis management in Malaysia and the Philippines in Chile and Mexico. And, you know, I've done all this stuff. And so we learning and teaching and growing and doing this stuff. So sometimes I show up and I know very little about the job and I have to learn it on the spot as fast as possible. And so it's very similar to a church environment when I move and I get a brand new (laughs) calling. And so that's why I think as Coast Guard people, we adapt to our new wards so well, because we're used to that kind of mindset. And we just want as much training as we can get. And that's why I love your podcast because it's one of those tools that I know I can get. And I'm like, oh, that's great. But what we do in a Coast Guard setting that I think we could get better in a church setting is that we recognize that not everybody wants to move up, but we need everybody to participate. Like we have two things that we really focus on in the Coast Guard that we talk about. We talk about that we, we promote people that have a bias for action. And we can't have any bystanders. Those are two of our big things that you'll see repeated all the time in the Coast Guard. In every promotion board, if you want to apply for grad school or special assignments or anything like that, you'll see them in every what we call precepts to the board because these board get special instructions that they say what they're looking for that given year. But in every given year, those things are always repeated. Bias for action, no bystanders. And especially in the world that we live in with increased sexual assault and especially an increased sensitivity where we're trying to root that out of the Coast Guard, those things are heavily prevalent in those messages as well, which is outstanding because we want no part of that in our service and in our organization. And we don't want it in the church either. So I think that it doesn't translate perfectly to the church, but if we change no a bias for action to a bias to acting in love and connecting people with the Lord's covenant love, I think it even it goes a little bit further. And that one in particular, I want to touch on a little bit because you have to find a way to show people that the Lord wants what's best for them. He wants to share everything with them. He wants to give them all that he has. The Lord's work and glory is their exaltation and their immortality. Our work 
in our glory should be their exaltation and their immortality. But too often we get checked, we get stuck in like, oh, what's their next thing or what's an assignment I can give them? No, it should be, what can I help them do? What can I help them learn? How can I love them? How can I connect them to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ that shows them that he's all about, they're all about this person's exaltation and their immortality? Yeah. And when we do that, it changes things. And then they don't feel pushed. They don't feel pressured. They just feel loved. And it's different. Yeah. Now, I, man, I, I don't know if I'm taking the complete left turn here, but this phrase you use just like jumped out at me, bias for action. And or we promote people who are biased, which is biased for action, right? And that is so fascinating, man. And obviously, it makes sense. But you, in the church context, there can almost be this trap at times. And I think this is maybe a phrase for leaders to sit with to contemplate how can they uncover those in the ward who are biased for action, because it does run the risk of run, of uh, the the same ten people dynamic, right? That it's the same ten people they get moved around because get moved around in the leadership and influential roles in a, in a ward or stake because those are the individuals who are biased for action, right? Like if you want something done, give it to the busiest person in the ward, right? But at the same time, like it's really thought provoking for me to say, well, how do I know who's biased for action? And because a lot of these people, they perceived as, as biased for action because we've simply given them the role and they've stepped into it where there's others who maybe haven't had the opportunity, but if given the opportunity, they'd be biased for action. So I, I don't know what, what comes to mind just from my reflection on that term. No, I love the way you said that and the way you thought about that. That is a great awareness and self-reflection that I think we should all take at times because that's what gets us to the individual inspired invitation. If we stop for a minute and be like, wait, who's really going to this move or who's going to this assignment or who's feeding the missionaries this month for heaven's sake? Like all of those things should be inspired invitational, in, inspired individual invitations, right? All of those things. But we don't think about it that way. Everything we do, when we go back to optimal versus the world and optimal versus the Lord's way, we should stop and not just act, but sit in it. And so I think what you're saying is perfect. And that's when I change that no bystanders in the Coast Guard's terminology, it's different in the Lord's terminology. And I think we have to strive to be an active participant in the shared revelatory experience of a council. And that's where the councils really come into key because that's where we need everyone's input on the council and even our family councils. That's where we really get involved in a family council. We, As a family, we work together and be like, hey, where's everybody working together? Like, how are we coming together as a family? Who's not active in this family right now? You know, getting back into the ward council a little bit more too. Like, who in this ward isn't feeding the missionaries? I've had this, I even asked my stake president one time, I was like, hey, can I, I have a welfare family and I've really had this one idea. Is this okay if I give them extra food from the bishop's storehouse to feed the missionaries? Can I do that? He's like, if that's what the keys are inspiring you to do as bishop, you can oh, totally cool. do that. And I'm like, okay, okay. I think that's because it tells me I have to have them do some sort of work. And I think they need the missionaries in their home. And so, you know, mm. I think we sometimes think about things and we get stuck in these, oh, they need to clean the church. But no, we don't have to do things the same way we've always done them. And and that's where these inspired invitations can be the same. Like, hey, I think this family really would benefit from having the missionaries in their home why don't we make an invitation to invite them to feed the missionaries or to invite them to have a, just a message with the missionaries in their home and, and check in with them? Like little things like that. Sometimes we make these invitations have to be so big or maybe we just say, hey, why don't you just invite this, these few families to come to your home for a barbecue? Like that's it. That's your invitation this month. And it, it takes us getting to know each other a lot more. But that council comes together and they see who are the bystanders in the ward. That's the question. Who are the bystanders in the ward right now? Who is not active in the Lord's vineyard? You know, and that's when we say, okay, well, what invitations could we make that would help them feel the Lord's love? Because mm. that's what really matters. And so that's, it's those, those philosophies aren't actually disconnected. They're completely interwoven and they have to be used as a council because I need everyone on my council to see that together 
because we all see different things. And I'm going to see somebody like, I'll give a, a great example of this. I'm going to see somebody and be like, I think they're not really that active. And my Relief Society's president is Bishop. She just got a surgery. Her son is failing math and they're really, or her husband's working two jobs right now. You cannot give her another invitation. And I'm like, thanks so much, sister. I really appreciate that you just put <laughs> yeah. me put me where I yeah. needed to be because I would really made a bad decision right there. And I needed to hear that, right? You know, that's a hypothetical example, but it's a very, that's a very plausible yeah. one with me and my wonderful Relief Society president, you know? And so those things can happen or it can go a totally different way. I could be like focused somewhere and they could say, no, you know who really needs it is her daughter or something like that, right? And they can just flip it on its head and be like, you know, like I have this amazing family right now. And ever since their son went on a a service missionary, the whole family has been on an upward trajectory and they're all just doing amazing things. And so the question wasn't like, do we not give them an invitation? Someone was like, I think they need different invitations now because they're doing different things. And it wasn't that we did. So we had to then have that conversation. And so, you know, sometimes I think the, the what questions are we asking matter a lot as well. Yeah. I love this concept of bystander and identifying the bystanders. You know, it's one thing to identify those who are biased for action, but also say, where are the bystanders? And in our in our faith tradition, typically what we do is we think, oh, well, they need a calling. If they get a calling, then they're no longer a bystander. But I think there's like a, a trap in that thinking of like, oh, great. You know, they're the uh, nursery teachers every other Sunday or whatever. And great, we'll check them off their list. They're no longer a bystander. But in their world, they may be thinking, I just wish I could contribute more. Or or you come to them and they may have a passion in fly fishing. And you're like, hey, we'd like to invite you to help the young men prepare for the summer camp or, you know, because they're going to go on this fishing trip and whatnot. And that's going to ignite them to the point where they're now biased for action because you've connected them with an invitation that brings them into the the circle of those who are biased for action, right? Like, I, I think that we do have this this tradition of saying, well, just give them a calling and therefore they're not a bystander, but they can have a calling and still be a bystander. Oh, absolutely. And I totally believe that everyone should have a calling, but I also think that we we rely too much on thinking that all callings are completely inspired. And sometimes we need more invitations mm-hmm. that are really inspired because sometimes someone will get a calling and they'll be thinking, what I really needed was a friend. That's what yeah. I really needed. And my calling just put me in primary where now all I see is kids and I've got young kids at home and now I've got less friends. And you know, maybe that calling probably was inspired because they needed the, something really different, but they also needed some invitations to get them around more friends. And so if we don't do both those things in concert together, we're going to miss something. And that's why the council is so important. The council is not about coming up with all the callings. We do that kind of differently. And I think too often what will happen in a council, if the council becomes our planning committee, and it becomes what callings do we need. And so we miss all these other opportunities mm-hmm. to actually make those invitations that are needed to get the families completely thriving in the gospel. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Well, I felt like I've led you in all sorts of directions here, Keith. What, uh, what else are we missing or what point do you want to jump into uh, before we wrap up? I think, Kurt, you asked me this one question about really identifying people. And, you know, I'm I'm a huge nautical person. I love to see my brother. He works for Boeing. He's an aviation guy. He tries to talk to me about airplanes. And I'm like, I joined the Navy and the Coast Guard. I don't want to hear a thing about airplanes unless it's a seaplane. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much my mentality. And I'm just You're the Elder Uchtdorf of yeah. the seas, right? <laughs> I, I am. My brother, yeah. It's funny when Elder Uchtdorf talks. I've got a best, another good friend that's a pilot. My brother, they they probably, you know, my brother's not a member of the church, but I, I'll try to send him stuff as much as I can. But they love airplane analogies, but I need more seafaring analogies um, in conference. That's my request if anyone's listening. <laughs> so, but I'll say there's this concept whenever a boat's built, and I think it's really important when we talk about counseling together, because this is going to dovetail doing a couple of things, but there's this concept whenever a boat's built that we do what's called sea trials. And so we essentially need to make sure that boat is seaworthy. And it's super important that we do this because if we don't, that boat's going to sink and people are going to lose their lives. Well, we do three things when the boat's built. So we do three sets of sea trials. We do what's called a dock side or dock trials. 
And during the doc trials, a couple things are done. They do the machinery trials, you know, where they test all the machinery. It's just what it sounds like. And they do a lights off check. Now, this one I really love because I think it's just got a beautiful gospel application. And they check all the electrical systems, the communication systems. If it's a warfare ship, they check the intelligence and surveillance ships and the radar systems, anything that could be, you know, electrical system or, you know, have a light or anything like that. They do a lights off where they check all those electronical systems, right? They make sure they're all working and they, they do that throughout, right? And they do that before they even put this vessel at sea. And then they do what they call builder's trials where they, whoever built it will do some tests. And then they do acceptance trials. And, and the acceptance trials are kind of that last phase where whoever is taking the boat will take it out and run it hard and do things like that. But before this boat's even run out to sea, they make sure the light's on. They make sure the, everything's functioning and that there's something going. Now, you know, I have just love some of these concepts that many people have been talking about, especially Terrell Givens. I know you had him on your pod, podcast yeah. recently, and I love Terrell Givens, among many people that have been um, talking about some of these things. But this idea that um, that is talked about so beautifully in the Book of Mormon about the desire to believe and how important it is. That's where the light starts, the desire to believe. And I think too often we gloss over that or we move beyond that. When we start to work with someone who's either returning to the faith or we're trying to check in with someone on on a council level or we're making assignments to individuals to go work with somebody and we're checking with, especially with the youth, which are very near and dear to my heart, my current calling, and um, especially with the youth. We try to check in with them or see where their faith journey is, and we don't really know where their desire to believe is at, and we just make some assumptions about that, or we we ostracize them because their desire to believe isn't quite where we think it should be, and we don't know how to work with that, and so we just either, um, in my my most recent podcast episode, talked about emotions, positive emotions, um, care, compassion. Um, tenderness and love and negative emotions, anger, dis- disgust, you know, we get the positive, negative, good and bad, you know, obviously good, but indifference, you know, is worse than bad. And oftentimes we treat people with indifference. We just kind of don't know what to do. So we walk away and don't give them emotion at all. That's really bad. And that's what we do to people with, with that desire to believe. But we have to teach people that it's okay only to have a desire to believe. And if they're going to even dwell on that for a long time, that's okay. And that's, that's that light trial, you know, turning those lights on and off, turning those lights on, making sure that those, that trial is done as thorough as possible before we ever put that, that person out to sea, you know, before we, we put the, the builder's trials come before we even put that person out on their own, but we got to make sure that that dock site is done thoroughly, that that person's desire to believe is, is strong. Yeah. Before we ever really try to move past that. And we, we're trying too hard to move way, way far past it. Yeah, that's a great analogy because sometimes we do have that desire. Like we almost um, frame like that, the the young, you know, missionary leaving on his mission. And like they're this sort of raging aircraft carrier that's just in the open sea and they're doing it. We almost want to like push them to that as quickly as possible. But sort of this principle of just taking them where they're at or meeting them where they're at. And being like, oh, it looks like you're having a problem just getting the lights on. And that's okay, right? It's important, but we can't just skip over it or be like, well, maybe if we get them in the open seas, then the lights will start to work or something, you know, but it just doesn't work like that. Or that's not a good good uh, method of of approaching it. Yeah. Or in my analogy, search and rescue, the Ashton Kutcher or the Kevin Costner jumping out of the helicopter, right? That's not where we want someone where the lights aren't on. We do not want them jumping out of the helicopter as a missionary to save someone else when they're not ready. You yeah. know, they're going to drown spiritually. There's there's another concept that talks about the environment. You know, in search and rescue, a very hostile environment, we have to put people in an immersion suit. And they have usually less than, we, we have to practice this. And we have usually, we have to show someone that in order to, to perform these operations that we can get inside this immersion suit in a minute. You know, it's a difficult task, but it can be done because the hypothermia can set in so fast that if we can't get in these immersion suits, you know, our time in the water, our survivability rate is so low. Well, that's one thing that I try to emphasize with the youth so much is that 
if we put ourselves consistently in these environments that are spiritually deadening or weakening, we don't have human survivability, these immersion suits. We can't. Like the spirit is our immersion suit, but it leaves us when we go in those environments. And so we have to recognize that we want to get to those warm waters of the Caribbean. I mean, everybody wants to go on a vacation on the Caribbean. They don't <laughs> want to swim in Alaska waters. Yeah. You know, that's where the immersion suit is not needed. That's where the spirit dwells. So, you know, that's where we can help people get to. And and I think with the youth especially, the youth in a lot of places are really struggling because they want to learn in a way that resonates with them and they want to show that they matter in a way that is authentic to them. And so often we're trying to teach them a way that's authentic to us. And I think it's so important to a council working together is that we have to learn and ask better questions about what is it that, you know, where are you at? What do you like? What works for you? How do you like to learn things? You know, what do you like to do? What's fun for you? All these questions, you know, what skills do you have? Because when we learn about a person's skills, when we learn about their gifts, like what they actually like to do, what they love, that's how we can harness those gifts and skills to actually get them active in the vineyard. Like I don't put someone in the vineyard laboring in an area where they they have no skills. If I do that, well, then they're not going to want to labor very long because they lose that light. They lose that passion. They lose those creative juices. It's the same for any environment. When I do that to my Coast Guard team, if I don't recognize their skills as much as they love the Coast Guard, if I'm not treating them as a human being and, and harnessing their gifts and skills and their creativity, they're going to leave the organization because they're just not going to have the passion for it. Yeah. No, I love that that framing. And you know, you go back, I don't know if this is the original one-to-one leadership interview, but one of the most profound questions that God asked Adam when Adam began to struggle was, Adam, where art thou? You know, where are you? And it's such a powerful question. And, and it doesn't, and maybe you can't ask that question, but to sort of go into these interviews, whether it's with youth or with the bystanders in your ward and just say, hey, you know what, let's just reflect for a minute. Like, where are you at? You know, and that's so crucial for that search and rescue is how can you even begin to find them when you don't even know where they're at or they may not even know where they're at. So what a powerful question and, and concept to approach those you lead with is where are you? Yeah. And we have to build the psychological safety at our wards and in our councils that it's okay with whatever answer they give you when they tell you where they're at. If we haven't created that environment that it's going to be okay for them to answer that question, they're never going to answer that question completely honestly. We have to first build a psychological safety where people feel comfortable telling us, hey, I'm not really great right now. You know, I have this one young woman, she's amazing and she plays the piano beautifully and she just doesn't feel very welcome in our young women's right now. Some days I'll just go, she'll walk out and she'll, she comes to every activity and she'll go play the piano. And sometimes I'll just walk out of our youth things and I'll go listen to her play the piano because she plays so beautifully. And I'll ask her all the time, how are you doing? And she'll tell me fine. And I'll go, I'll always tell her, you don't need to lie to me. And you know, and so we're getting, we're building a little bit better relationship. And, and so one day she finally looks at me and she goes, no, seriously, Bishop, I'm doing really good today. And then she started to have a conversation to me, but she knows, like she knows her answers are different. I'm doing fines are different. And she, I'm starting to, we're having real conversations about what that means now, but we have to work to create that environment where they're willing to get past the goods, the artificiality of those answers. Yeah. Powerful stuff. All right, Keith, any, any other principle that we need to hit on before we wrap up? Or, I mean, we no, can go I, on and on, right? And that's why you have oh, your own podcast, so you can go on and on. <laughs> I loved it. I would just say you've had some phenomenal people on there. I am always looking for people that love servant leadership. Even you, Kurt, if you want to come on the podcast. Hey, I'm always I game. Would to, I would love to have you on. So you've got an open invite and you can come on. But anybody that's listening, if they want to come talk about servant leadership, and help other people draw closer to the Savior, because that's really what my podcast is all about in different ways, and to help people build a community that helps people serve one another. Because in the end of the day, that's how we're going to help people grow closer to the Savior, is yeah. building communities that serve one another. Awesome. And that's how we're going to help the youth want to stay with us, is showing them that they can build communities that serve one another too. And Keith's podcast is That All Might Be Edified. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can probably do a search there and and find it. And uh, what's the, I mean, is there a color of the logo or? Yeah, it's got one of those uh, 
crystal photography balls. I try to do something creative. I might, I've been oh, okay. playing with it. If I need to change the logo <laughs> and then it's got the, all might be identified around the, the nice. crystal photography ball. I was at a, I was at an ice cave when I did it and I just love that logo. So I've been playing with it, but now you guys will get the secret behind the logo since you're here, but I wanted you to have to peer into it and wonder what you were looking at because I think that that's what we need to do with people. We have to really try to peer inside people and wonder about them more before we can actually get to know them at a deeper level. Yep. All right. The last question I have for you, Keith, is as you reflect on your time uh, as a leader in the Coast Guard, but also uh, a church leader as a bishop, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I, I love this question. I it's always I think it's my favorite part of your podcast. And man, I I'm, think I'm ill-equipped to answer it a lot of days and most days. And even now, you know, I think as I think about that question, I know that the more and more I watch other people, I just want to help them grow closer to the Savior. I want them to feel the love that I feel for the Savior. I want them to feel that life just gets better when we serve one another, when we serve in the church, when we, that leading in the church is, has nothing to do with titles or leadership or responsibility. It's all about exactly what the Savior tried to teach us. It's about serving. It's about getting on our knees and washing each other's feet and loving people so much that like Enos, we, we go from wanting our own salvation to wanting our family's salvation, to wanting our enemy's salvation, to wanting the whole world's salvation, because that is the work and the glory. And as I do it, I know that I can only do it by this, the help of the Savior, because that's all I can really accomplish in this world. I can learn and learn and learn and still not be good enough. And most days I struggle with imposter syndrome, like probably most people that listen, but the Savior will always help every person that strives to lead. And that's what I've learned by striving to be a leader. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about. The friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, solve the burden of meetings by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14 and getting 14 days access to the Meetings with Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only, and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.